You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a bite-sized podcast that brings you real-world insights that help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we share best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demand Matrix. Demand Matrix helps you complete your data stack with technographic, intent, and revenue potential data to help you accelerate revenue. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and today we have a really special episode. We have Kathy Chow joining us, and she's going to be talking about transformation through operations. For those of you who know me, I love operations, so I'm super fortunate to have Kathy over here uh, with us. So, Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Asher. Great to be here. So, interesting data point. Like, since I first talked to Kathy, I've spoken with two or three women who are sales strategists. I'm sure they're going to love to kind of connect with you, Kathy. But before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are? Sure thing. So I'm at VMware right now. I run sales strategy and operations. And I'm a mechanical engineer by trade who always loved the sales side. So with that, I've worked at HP, Intuit, Informatica. I started in sales strategy and ops in 2005, then went to Intuit and Informatica. And then with VMware, I had a very, very interesting story. I was about to join as the America sales strategy and ops lead And then the whole Dell EMC thing occurred and I met the chief people officer. We really hit it off. And she said, you know what? I want you in this company, but we have an R&D ops role for you. So I met with the CTO. The rest is history. I joined running R&D operations and central services. VMware is a very, very technical company. It was a great entree into understanding the products and have recently been promoted to senior vice president Uh, running sales strategy and ops. So that background has helped me tremendously. So that's how I've gotten here. See, R&D ops, that's a new one. And, you know, my personal mantra is that there's a lot of executives who are very inspirational. There's a lot of executives that are very strategic, which really just means they're financial. But there's not that many executives that are operational. And I feel like you need to have the, the, the trifecta skill set you unlock yourself to become a super executive. So I really want, love that we're having this conversation. And uh, um, and, I, and I wanted to get your thoughts on like, like the importance of learning and understanding operations, no matter where they are in the organization, it's important to know. So what are your thoughts? Well, first of all, I completely agree with you that operations is the lifeblood, right? You can have the best strategy. You can have the best roadmap. You can have the best framework. But if you don't execute on it, then you don't see anything. There are no results. And I think as, you know, what people need to learn and understand around operations is, and especially as we move to subscription in SaaS, right? VMware was traditionally an on-prem company and we would sell things and then we move on to the next sale, right? Because it was the customer who was responsible for upgrades and lifecycle management and those sorts of things. But now when you do subscription in SaaS, the onus is on us. So we own that customer through the entire life cycle, right? We need to make sure that they're consuming, they're using, how do we expand the portfolio and things like all of a sudden that seem mundane, like SaaS billing become really important because if you can't do the billing right, if you can't quote right, those are all customer experiences. 
And it's all about customer experience now, right? Isn't it, Asher? And that's what operations is here it, to do. It, it, it totally is. I mean, I feel like the, the next gen is all about how do you help the customer? Although, you know, like I've spoken to many executives that were way before my time. And they also all talk about customer experience. They just never codified it like that because sales was a lifeblood, right? But I feel like if you're a senior exec or you're on the path to becoming a senior exec, and I say this over and over again on this podcast because we have a lot of international aspiring and future executives that are in our audience. If you don't know operations, you're only going to be able to scale yourself. And if you only scale yourself, you're going to get paid like a VP, but you're actually not going to be a VP. So the, the being a VP is about understanding how the resources, the relationships around you come together to unleash everything that the company has to offer. So I, I totally thank you for giving us that perspective. Yeah. Can I add one more thing about what you just yes, said? Yes. Sure. Um, one thing that we are learning very quickly is, you know how, like you said, there's sales, there's marketing, there's finance, there's ops, there's R&D. Again, when you're in a SaaS environment, the whole company is involved to be successful, right? Where product features need to be aligned with what we can deliver operationally, right? If we're going to create an upgrade program, we don't want to create five upgrade programs for five products. We want to create one. So all of a sudden, you know, R&D has to understand what we're trying to deliver as far as customer experience for these sort of customer programs and the entire company needs to work together. So to your point, understanding it across the functions is going to be a skill set that is needed more and more. And for those who truly understand the life cycle of how something is made, built, produced, sold, right, supported, those are the people that are going to have yep. the edge in the future. 100%. And, you know, when you say R&D, I'm thinking of a financial statement, the line R&D, and everything that encompasses and the operations for that. Am I thinking of it the right way? Yes, exactly right. Okay. So if... If there are execs out there who have not spent time with R&D folks, product managers, engineers, architects, solutions, like, you know, the it's just like salespeople always like to sell the most shiniest object. R&D folks only like to work on the most amazing, innovative things. You know, they don't like to work on boring things. So it's really important to understand that piece of it. Uh, I, I think you have a story there or a thought. I do. <laughs> well, having worked in R&D for three and a half years, you're spot on, right? It's it's human nature. We always go to the shiny object. We go to the sexy thing, the cool thing, the new thing. But you know what? When you have customers for life, you will have tech debt. And there are things before, you know, and customers are telling us, they're telling us because we have a lot more listening posts and understanding them. They're saying, some of them are saying, I can't move on to the next thing because I got to get the thing I have working. Can you please fix yes. that? And we have to turn those things, you know, like certifications, like fixing bugs, you know, that we had that in the next release and those sorts of things. And, and what I love about the subscription and SaaS transformation that we're having in the company is we're all coming together on this, right? Some of them may be billing issues we've got to fix. Others may be features that we've got to get back on track. We all have to understand the totality of what the customer wants. And I think that's the unifying factor. Absolutely. I mean, we, even at the smaller scale, right? And, you know, the learning from somebody like you is like, how do you do this at scale, right? Because at a startup level, it's easy. 
And I guess I would say it's easier, right? Because you can meet with the five, seven people. You can go have a pizza. You can have some beer. And yes, we got we we whiteboarded it. Here's a white white wireframe. Go to a designer. Gone out, right? You are dealing with a very different <laughs> landscape where you have like thousands of people who are devoted to the way they want to do things, right? And how do you move that army? and keep things shiny enough so that they were, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, and again, this is for all functions, right? The shiny versus the, the must do's, right? It's gotta be a balance. Everything's a balance. It's not one way or the other. Okay. That's the first, I think in setting goals, goal setting is really important that you have that balance in those metrics. We have one that's called ease of doing business. It is a euphemistic term for clean up the stuff that you got to do, right? Because it's got to be easy (laughs) to do business. And let's not forget that for many companies, it's a cultural change, right? I mean, certainly at VMware, we grew up in a way where, you know, individual franchises or products, you know, they're used to, and we have acquisitions as well. They have certain ways of doing things. And that may have served its purpose then, but as we're selling more solutions, right, across the product lines, we need to make sure that we unify and come together. So between the metrics, understanding the culture, making sure we have the balance, those are the ways that I employ to ensure that we do both, because you've got to do both. Another popular word around here at VMware is and, it's not or, but we've got to be careful of what the and is, right? So if you think about... uh, Picking the correct ands is important because, you know, we're all in this pandemic, as you know, uh, people are pretty yeah. worn out, they're tired. Not everything can be a priority, but those critical priorities, we must be able to balance ease of doing business with the exciting new features, products, and tools. You're, you're so right. And I think <laughs> that one thing that COVID has all taught us execs is that if you're getting to a deadlock and things aren't easy because some of the things that executives, let's say, debate over, right? If they aren't naturally fitting in, it's better to just let it go for a little bit because if it does have customer demand behind it, it is going to come up. It may come up in three weeks or three months. It is going to come up again. And you may have better momentum and a little bit more alignment to just push that initiative forward versus go create this friction-led environment and exhaust people even more than they are already exhausted. Okay, I'm going to let you in on a little secret of mine. Yes, please. Um, of, of that, what you're talking about is playing chess, not checkers, okay? When you're approaching problems like this, to your point, we use the term frictionless a lot here, right? Touchless, frictionless. Uh, first, I think the foundation in any sort of change you want to make starts with data, facts, not opinions. What is the customer saying? What is what is the data telling us? Okay, so you start there. You must have that foundation. And then you have to know when. When is the right time to push on this, right? Sometimes, and you've heard these terms like, let's lose the battle to win the war, right? You know what the big thing is, but maybe we'll, we'll let go. We'll let this one slide a little bit until... Maybe there's more momentum around it. And I always let it, let the customer speak, let the partner speak, let them tell you, because at some point 
The goal is, okay, when you're in a friction point, let's say you and I are having this issue and I'm trying to get you to do something. I want it to be your idea, not mine, that I'm not telling you, you are looking at it. I may bring you the data. I may bring you the case. I may bring it to you at the right time, but you look at it and you say, yeah, we got to move. When that happens, it's amazing how quickly things can get done. And so I learned this in business school. You know, they, they called this, you need to be able to manage a crisis and sometimes you may need to create a crisis. And I don't mean that in the negative sense in any way, shape, or form. But to create that burning platform to spurn people to action, to your point, there are so many priorities that need to be done. You do need the ingredients of the data, right? The facts and the timing of getting something done and the importance and its impact to customers and partners. And when you get those three, things go lickety-split. Yes. Yeah. I mean, one of my mentors always said, if it doesn't feel natural, just don't do it. It's going to come back. You have plenty of time to do great things. Yeah. So well, you know just, what? just don't push the unnatural. You know what? There's another phrase I use a lot. It's go slow to go fast. You know, it sounds counterintuitive, doesn't it? Go slow to go fast. Sometimes you may go fast, but you may go wrong. And, and then, you know, you've caused some damage. And yes. granted, if you go wrong, it's not all lost. You've learned, yes. right, from that mistake. And hopefully you can bring that in. But sometimes you've got to make sure your ducks are in line. You know that. Your mentor is absolutely correct. Absolutely. And I want to say something that potentially is a little controversial. But at the scale that at you're operating it, and if there are future leaders that want to operate at your level, if you are going to go wrong, go wrong in a smaller business unit. Don't go wrong in your core. <laughs> Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> because the, the, at a smaller BU level, you're you it's salvageable because you have enough resources to bring it back up. You went wrong in your core, you have a bigger problem. <laughs> well, that's why I use this term chess, you know. Um I, would, I had done a a little vignette at our sales kickoff about my team and I use Queen's Gambit as the thought, right? Okay. <laughs> it's, it's all about chess. You know how popular chess is these days. Yep, yep. Chess is you do your several moves ahead, okay? You contingency plan. You really map it out. Uh, to your point, you have to be very, very thoughtful and use judgment on when is it okay to... And by the way, failure is not a bad thing, okay? It is not. But use that wisely and what do you learn from it and how do you improve upon it and also to have the confidence to say you know what our best laid plans we were trying to do x y and z it, it failed but here's what we learned and here's what we're building into our new plan abc that's going to get us there yes no, absolutely right all right let's move to customer success because it's it, it is the way of the future and uh, and and it's interesting because you have these terms um, as customer leaders, technically call themselves revenue leaders, which is a financial term. The more and more people should adopt the customer uh, word in their titles to describe and demonstrate their values. But one of the things that is always confusing is the definition of customer success or customer experience, right? And so every time we have senior executives on the show, we always just ask them to just define what the word either is customer success or customer experience means for the conversation that we're about to have. Okay, well, there's the outcome of what you want for customer success and customer experience. And then there's also the how you organize, right? And I bet you there's varying different ways of 
what is included, excluded um, in customer success, right? And so, but let's talk about the outcome. What are we trying to achieve? The way I view customer, uh, I'm going to actually talk about customer success and then customer experience, two different things. So customer success to me is making sure that the customers achieve their outcomes, that they are successful, that the customer is successful. And that means you must understand what are their outcomes? What are their risks? What are their goals? What are they trying to achieve? And how can we help them be as wildly successful, profitable, whatever you want to talk, growth as they can be? Okay, so that's one. Customer experience is a whole different animal, okay? Customer experience is along the journey that you have with this customer. And it starts when they're first prospecting for what they want to do. It even ends with, let's say you've, you're have you terminating the relationship, right? Even terminating relationships must be done in a way that, hey, you never know, they may come back to you again. But that entire life cycle through, you know, the marketing, through the sales, through contracting, the booking, the billing, the delivery, right? The operating, the support, that whole thing, there's customer experience pieces in every single one of them. And the notion, we talked about this earlier, frictionless, touchless, right? And we would love to get to the point where we're predictive, where we're even understanding what their needs are and what they want to experience before they experience it is nirvana. That's where we want to get to. So that would be my definitions. And when we talk about how it's organized, there's very, very different ways in which to do that, right? You hear about the customer success team. These are built of customer success managers, customer success architects. So you've got the technical folks, you've got the people who are really, you know, making sure that the customer is being taken care of. Uh, Most times they are not on a comp plan, right? Because that's, they're not motivated by selling the next thing. They're motivated by making sure the customer achieves their outcomes. Uh, In many cases, you have customer support there. You may have customer consulting. You may have customer education, right? Because that's also an experience if you think about customer success, Uh, or you may not. So that, I think different companies based on whether you're software, whether you're on-prem software, whether you're hardware, you may have different things that come in and out. But I believe a successful customer success organization is still trying to achieve those two goals, making sure the customer's are successful and that the experience is as delightful as it can be. World-class. Absolutely. And you had a special time in your journey where you were asked to stand up a customer experience function. And just like most amazing people, you're always given assignments that you have no experience with. So tell us, walk us through the journey. Yes. Okay. So after my R&D role, uh, I've done that for three and a half years. It was a great indoctrination into VMware and understanding the products. And uh, the, the I will say again in a story, the chief people officer said to me, you know, you've been in this role for some time. Uh, it would be good if you got some exposure. And I had multiple choices in front of me. And I specifically chose customer success because it's, first of all, as you say, very topical, very timely and super important in the industry. And also inside VMware as we were pivoting. So we had a new leader that came in who was going to lead that. And so it was kind of a build from the ground up type of experience. So having that entrepreneurial experience was also something I relished. And if you think about uh, standing that up, I really had to start from scratch. 
So one of the first things is I read and I read and I read. So uh, our boss asked us to read a book by Nick Mehta about customer success, right? So I read that. I know, you know, we, we talked about him earlier. Yeah. I really just threw my, myself into it, right, to understand because we didn't really have that experience at VMware, not because we were building it, right? And yeah. so going to conferences and understanding what it was all about allowed me to set up the customer a success operations team, I would say in reasonably short order. And one of the things my boss told me was make sure you and Nick become good friends, you know, that you know what's going on so he can help guide you. And one of the interesting things about VMware, we would be one of the few companies that is hybrid where we sell on-prem and subscription SaaS at scale to, to really have a successful customer experience organization. So uh, I can tell you more later if you're interested on what I did and, and how we set it up. Are you interested in that? Absolutely. I'm <laughs> sure we have uh, audience members uh, who would all love to know the nuts and bolts of this thing. <laughs> okay, excellent. So I had to say to myself, what are the pillars, right? If we're starting this thing from ground up, we already had existing teams, right? Just like every company will have existing teams. We had our, you know, uh, technical account managers. In fact, what would happen is certain sales roles and certain technical account manager roles were, some of them were playing the customer success role. So it wasn't like we weren't doing it. They just were naturally playing that role. So we really needed to understand what is it that was going to happen on the, what I call the sales side of customer success. How is that going to be set up? What would the customer success managers look like? What would they need to help them? Things like playbooks, metrics, customer health scorecards, right? They, you have the driver, but we need to create the car, right? What's, what, does the, what does the dashboard look like? What are the indicators that they need to drive that car in the most efficient and effective manner that uses the least amount of gas, right? From us and from the customer. So one of the things that um, there were five pillars that we looked at. First was all around systems and tools. And I had to learn about a new tool called Gainsight because you know I was very familiar with salesforce.com on the sales side. Gainsight is a tool, as you know, um, and uh, Nick and team really, I got an indoctrination on what Gainsight was and how it was and how, that's another thing. At scale, one thing I will say, you, we wanted to strive to one instance of Gainsight and out of the box, okay? Not customizing it, not doing it, because we wanted to get to the single source of truth, SSOT. I don't know if that's an acronym people know, but that is so critically important. If you don't have the foundation of the data, then you are operating in a vacuum. You are not operating with, it's sort of like driving blind, right? Using the car analogy, right? You put a blindfold on yourself and you're driving thinking, I think I'm going in the right direction. So that was assistance. Next was the notion of customer intelligence. So under, I talked earlier about listening posts. So at every step of the way, what are our customers telling us? Are we hearing them? First of all, are we surveying them? And I know we have to be very careful about surveys. You know, we talked about, talk about another connection between uh, R&D and sales. When moving into software, you can do listening inside the software, right? So when they're working in the software, a little thing can bubble up. How are you doing? Is this working? And gathering in-product feedback, you know, was something that we were looking at, telemetry, uh, surveys, NPS, all of that. So that was customer intelligence. 
And then there was the whole customer success management and experience. And these are the playbooks, the process, the roles and responsibilities, the racy. You know, now we're creating a whole new group, right? Customer success managers, customer success architects. How, what is their role in relation to, you know, solution architects, sales, right? All of specialists, all of that we have there. And then we have, well, we had the more mundane piece like planning because you do need to plan, right? You need to plan and that's the chess pieces many steps ahead. And last but not least, it was a topic called strategic business operations, that pillar, because customer success is not an island. So we do need to understand how does Gainsight fit into Salesforce.com? How do the customer health scorecards that we're creating fit into the dashboards that we're putting in place around pipeline generation, right? Around account planning. How do they fit together? And I will fast forward and say, it's funny as I was building this, because we had to connect with the worldwide sales strategy and operations team. So I only happened to be in this customer success role for three months. And then I moved over to the worldwide sales strategy and operations side. And I am now the partner to the customer success ops team to ensure this linkage. Wow. What what a journey. As you were telling me this uh, story uh, or about your journey, uh, I remember the time, and this actually happened to one of my colleagues, but I just happened to be with the colleague. And we were, um, my background is I grew up through business development, which is the augmented funnel to uh, the the true funnel, right? Which is sales and marketing. And uh, the CEO of that company uh, was telling my friend and I, because we were trying to build the partner dashboard. And, you know, in partner land, there's always the source versus influence dilemma, which I think was probably was there since the dawn of time and is all definitely going to be there after all of us are gone uh, because it's just one of those things. It's just a fact of partner life, right? So we built this amazing dashboard and we're looking at things and we're saying, oh, well, this thing needs to be here. That thing needs to be here. This one should be on this corner because people will click from here to here, right? And the CEO goes, hey, guys, just make sure you got the plumbing right. And we didn't understand it at that point in time. And and then later on, we launched it and we're like, this is a mess. And then at that point in time, we realized we didn't have the plumbing right. So every future uh, initiative after that, we first started with the plumbing. We're like, which field? What is it called? What is its ID? How does this ID become a connect with the primary ID? What is the keychain? Like all of this stuff. So I totally appreciate what you're, what you're saying. And I'm telling this other side of the story as well, because, you know, if you're at an early stage company or if you're at a smaller company, you, you have the same problems. But at, the, at scale, they're just magnified and it takes a lot of time to correct them. So we need to, like I would say, build our operational muscle as early as possible and connect with our partners in sales ops or marketing ops or customer service, wherever they're at. And, and and take a little bit of time to to learn from them and mi- build our skill set and then also not let's not forget our friends in finance because the FPNA guys can uh, are lovely people they may sound boring they're actually not uh, and 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 once all this work is done they can help you land it with the business goals so that your boss's boss's boss who's the CEO actually looks good and that's success 
Well, you know what? You mentioned something that is so critically important about operations. I would say that, you know, at VMware, it because we were such a product-dominated company, it was kind of product out, right? This is in the past, product out, throw it over the fence and let ops handle the rest, right? And and for a long time, that worked rather well. But now to exactly your point, operations needs to be involved right up front because we can now help influence the design of the product. And when you do that, that is how you magnify and create frictionless and touchless and delightful customer experiences. And I also want to talk a little bit of uh, about managing the thing to change, because you know even through operations, right? Like you are arguably uh, dealing with one of the most complex environments that anybody could deal with, right? After you retire, we're going to probably do a hardware case study on you and say, <laughs> okay, Kathy, like help us work, work, help us learn all these things, right? But the the the, just like inspiration, right? Like there are some people that are good at one-to-one. There are some people that are good at like one-to-few. There are some people that are good at one-to-many. And then there's like folks like Satya Nadella and other executives who get like coaching and a lot of support to speak to 30,000 people and inspire them all, right? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking that even in operations, there's like levels of like operational maturity that you can do like you can tackle a core business, you can tackle one acquisition, you can tackle 17 acquisitions. Is Am I thinking about this the right way? Yeah. And you know what? I loved your story about the plumbing, right? And again, when you even say the word plumbing, it doesn't sound very interesting, does it? But it is, it is the pipes that bring the water to everywhere that you need it to be brought to. And uh, I think understanding what your infrastructure is for handling acquisitions is really important. And I think VMware, in a sense, has learned the hard way of when you don't have the plumbing set, you'll get the leaks right here and there. And and some of them can be very, very painful. I think the good news is we really are rallying around and understanding the building of the plumbing. Uh, we have hired a new chief data, uh, chief digital transformation officer who's saying, hey, we need to create a subscription and SaaS commerce platform. That is what we call, those are the pipes, right? That we're building, copper pipes, the, yep, yep, the best yep. ones. And then yep. we can build upon those, right? And so that we're not reinventing it every time. And, you know, I remember uh, when we were integrating some of the companies, we'd say, well, we, we need you to integrate onto VMware, but onto what? Because we had multiple different pipes in different houses, right? And so which house are you integrating onto? And now we're building it for the one house, you know, moving forward. So yeah, critically important. Fantastic. So do you have pointers on um, managing through all this change? I'm sure you do. Yes, I, just have I, to do. Ask. <laughs> I do, I do, I do, I do. Um, so when I do, we have all hands. I'm sure everybody has some sort of all hands. I happen to have uh, about 1400 people on my team. So speaking of being able to scale, I've got to scale, right? I, when my voice, because I would love to say I would meet every single one of the people that is on my team. That would be my goal. Certainly not in the pandemic. It's been very difficult. But even without that, the chances of me meeting everybody is very, very low. So the point is, how do I amplify my message, my voice to enable change? And in my all hands, I always have this, uh, the final thoughts, 
And the, and it's really my message to the team about, and it's usually very topical. And so final thoughts have been around transformation. Final thoughts have been around innovation. Final thoughts have been around work-life balance, right? The, the last final thoughts for my all hands was around change and the no, the notion that change is constant. And, you know, many of us are afraid of change, right? I mean, who wants change? And if you're in a good situation, you know, relish it because it, it probably may change. On the, on the flip side, if you're in a bad situation, hey, look forward to the fact that it will change. I guarantee you it will change. Something will change. And so how do we build the muscle to not only accept change and embrace change, but to drive change? And that's the culture I'm trying to build on my team. And I'll give you an example of, of what I'm doing. Sometimes they're very simple things. So today, uh, every Friday, I have what I call my informal skip level meeting. And it's kind of fun because I've just been in this role for eight months and I've had about eight of these thus far because uh, we just really got it started. But, you know, so these are skip level, either, uh, you know, two levels down, four levels down, five levels down, whatever. Okay. They come onto this meeting. They have no idea what the agenda is. And they're at first, they're, oh my gosh, I'm with the SVP. They're very nervous. You know, it's like, what's this meeting about? First thing I say to them is, I want you to understand that there is no agenda for this meeting. The only objective for this meeting is that you get to know each other and you don't think about work for just half an hour. And oh, you just see the size of relief. And I asked them, you know, of course, how long have you been at VMware? What's your role? Where, where are you located? And then uh, there is the what's unique about you, right? And that's what really gets the conversation going. But as I ask them these questions, I always ask them, raise your hand if you know everyone on this in this meeting. And it's small. There's like six or seven. It's pretty intimate. We go eight for eight. Nobody knows everyone at the meeting, okay? And even people in the same geography don't know each other. And so my thought around change is it starts at the base around people because a lot of the change you need to make happens to be at the borders, right? Cross-functional. So again, Asher, if I didn't know you, I just won't talk to you because I'm going to go do my thing. Yep. But if I know you, yes. I might say, hey, I want to reach out to you because I want to make this new thing. What are your thoughts? So what I'm trying to do is break down all of the walls between my own team. We're going to start there first and hopefully demonstrate that for VMware, yep. that VMware can do it too. Yes. No, it, it's tough. It's really tough. I mean, uh, the same company that I joined, I think when I first, the where most of my mentors came from, uh, were was eighty people, and then when I left, they were twenty five hundred or something yeah. like that, right? Yeah. And and it, it's it's tough. It's extremely tough because you you have to change yourself to be able to adapt to this massive growth. And uh, and I was working with like Microsoft or Oracle, and you know the, these companies are, are and and yours too, by the way. You know, it's just I the. The world I was in, there was just no reason to work with VMware. I'm sure if there was, we probably would have crossed uh, crossed paths. But we're crossing paths now. This is great. Uh, but in that, it, it's really tough to get to know so many people. And then I think Dunbar's number, which is the 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 standard of how many great relationships you can have, I think is like 145 or 150. And so if you have a large extended family like I do, and I'm sure you do too, you know, 75 of those people are already gone. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, so like there's only 75 more people that we can have a tight relationship with. Yeah. 
So, I mean, it, it is it is true, but I applaud you for actually doing, uh, 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 trying to break, break these silos. It's tough. And I think I'm assuming it's an ever green effort because you have to just keep on doing this. It's never done. It's never done. You know why? Because people come and go as well. <laughs> so I was joking with the team. I said, if, in order for me to get through all the people on my team, it might take me 10 years at this pace, right? Six people at a time, once a week. Yes. But um, that's the other thing I want to mention is, you know, it's big things, it's small things. Like if I just change one person's outlook, right, for them to think broader, think differently, or that they feel that they belong, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is a really important topic for me, but that they feel that they belong. And when you feel you belong, when you feel like you're in a, a team that embraces change, that allows for failure, that allows you to learn from your mistakes, to grow and develop, you're going to do more. You naturally are going to do more. You're going to be bolder. You're going to be more uh, thoughtful and how you do things because you care. And if I can mobilize my team in that way, uh, I would have done it, you know? And like you say, it's evergreen. It's never done. Yeah, and the other thing that I love about you is your view on diversity is actually diversity of experience and geographies and and certain things that other people that, actually take DIA initiatives don't actually talk about and and I feel like like if you have experiences geographies and maybe food I feel like you will have no more issues like I think this will all just take care of itself uh but where did you come up with this framework of diversity of experiences and um before I let you answer like I'm an immigrant too and so my parents um were working professionals and my dad was actually in the military so we had to move all the time and so you just have to go make new friends. So that's how I learned, uh, learned it. But I would love to hear where you got that perspective from. Well, it's funny. So, you know, I know we've only met a few times, but there's so many connection points and similarities. I moved around a lot as well. Now, my parents were immigrants, but by the time I was 14, I'd lived in seven different places. So, you know, the longest tenure was maybe two years. The shortest tenure was eight months living all East Coast, Midwest, West Coast, all around. So when people say, do you have any childhood friends? I say, no, I mean, I really don't. I never, <laughs> I never sprouted roots. Um, but, but to that point, that is really where I learned this notion of, uh, this notion of uh, diversity of geography, right? Even yep. within the U.S., whether you're on the East Coast, the Midwest, or the West, or the South, or the North, you have different experience sets. Now, think, put that in a global perspective, right? Whether you're in the EMEA region or APJ or Americas, and even, again, even within all of those, you know, we talk about, you know, the Sikh region. It's, it's just really, we have to learn that it is a quilt of many different squares, right? But it does form, you know, the whole entire quilt, but each square is unique and you need to understand that. And how do you build the collective of that? And so, I also learned this because of being an Asian American female and always being labeled that. And I would say, you know, I'm much more than that. I'm much more than gender and I'm much more than, uh, you know, my ethnicity. There's a lot more to me. And so that's why I say diversity of experience, right? Hey, some people have retail experience. Some people have lived in different countries. Some people 
are techie. Some people are great writers. All of that is important when you want to make a decision, right? Because ideally you want the most diverse team. Um, and again, it, the more I think about it, it being gender and ethnicity is actually very, very uh, basic. I mean, it's almost, it's an interesting, but not sufficient, right? And so geography, like you say, depending on where you grew up, education, right? Engineers learn things in a certain way. Writers, philosophers learn things in another way. Scientists, right? Yes. All of that is, is very different. And that shows you how you think and how you do things. And so sexual orientation, right? I mean, you think about it. There's so many different, and we call it intersectionality here, by the way. There's so many different ways we are different, right, Asher? I mean, it's not just what you look like and, and your gender. It's who you are and what makes you. And when you unleash those aspects, we realize that we are all diverse. We And how do we, it, and by the way, you know the studies, right? There were many studies that showed that the more diverse teams would come up with better outcomes, right? I think it was something, it was a yeah. study that was done by McKinsey, 30% more uh, productivity, 20% more profitable, those sorts of things. And, and why? I love the story about, I used to work for General Motors, okay? And there, at a time, the minivans were being developed, okay? That was, and they were being developed by men. And the people who ended up driving them were moms, right? Because they were carting the kids around to and from school. And I remember this study, I think it was a Harvard Business School case, where they were saying when the men were developing it, uh, it wasn't really selling. You know, there were a lot of issues. Then they realized, wait, who is our target customer? So they got that. The women got involved. It was women and men, right, designing. And then all of a sudden, it just exploded. And you can use that for anything. Like if you think about software development, right? Our users are very diverse. We don't want just one type of person to look at. So we have all those verticals, right? Your retail, your banking, you know, your healthcare. We have the different geographies. Here I am in a very small country. Here I am in a big country, small city, big city. You have, you know, uh, academia, you know, all the different ways that people want to consume our software. And then we also talk about things like accessibility. You know, that's another huge one that gets ignored, right? People who are blind, people who are deaf, people who have physical limitations, right? People who can't touch a keyboard. Um, we have to be inclusive in that way. And I say the first company that really gets that whole thing done will have a lock because I think we all don't have it done. This is another evergreen topic, right? It just, you continue to focus on that. But by having kind of the more, in my way, a more sophisticated or more refined way of looking at diversity, uh, it's leading to better outcomes. Great. And super glad that we spent some time on this because a lot of times I'll get questions of how does one unlock their super execiness, if that's a word. And, and it's actually through these things. And you, you really do have time and you can take time to slow down, to go fast like we covered already. But nobody actually talks about like, what does it actually take, right? Everybody says, hey, just go build relationships. Awesome, right? And great. So, and then what, right? I think like, as you said, you have to take these experiences, you have to learn from them. Then you have to co-experience things together. And if you create that environment, uh, you can have a culture lock. And you're right. Like if whoever has a culture lock, uh, that company is going to be uh, is going to do great. And I'll give the example of the same company. We had one goal. 
And we said we were going to achieve that goal, whether it took five years or 55 years. And everybody was so high on the goal. And nobody ever knew actually who came up with the goal, by the way. But the the, 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 the goal was so amazing and, uh, and, and fun that that company did extremely well. And, and they unlocked themselves and they went on to do great things. And, and, and uh, it all came down to culture. It was nothing else. Absolutely. You know, they say culture, each strategy for lunch, right? Because the, the culture, first of all, culture is very difficult to build. Yeah. Okay. Very, very difficult to build it. If you build that culture lock, I like that. It's impenetrable because it's not based on one person. You know, we our our CEO, Pat Gelsinger, left to become the CEO of Intel. Right. And we've been operating for several months uh, without him. He was a big proponent of our epic two values and who we are. But it's so ingrained in our company that the company is riding along, you know, because we have it built into our DNA. It's how we operate. And I think it's what makes VMware very special. And within the VMware organization, you know, I want to create that specialness for my team. And I also look at our team as having a very large responsibility to help VMware scale. So my team has to be the healthiest, very healthy, right? It has to be healthy. The people need to be able to lock on all cylinders. We need to be agile and responsive, but it starts with culture. And do I belong? Do I feel I can make a contribution? And I'm excited. Am I excited to come to work every day, right? Those are the things I strive to build on my team. Yes, no, kudos to you for taking it so personally. I think it's fantastic. So as we move towards concluding this this episode, which, by the way, is fantastic. I'm actually going to put a LinkedIn post about the amazing time I had with you today, uh, right after this episode. Uh, and we can see how many likes we all get. But the uh, is there a book, a blog, a newsletter, or a video that you would recommend to our listeners, knowing that they're all global? Yes. Um, so I'm going to show it. Okay, so the book is called Who Moved My Cheese? This is an oldie but goodie. In fact, let me see when it was first published. You know, sometimes the classics, uh, for me, it's a classic. I'm going to explain to you why. Uh, This book has been around, let's see, since 1999. So there we go. That's when it was first published. I'll tell you why I like it for the global audience. First of all, you don't have to be proficient in English to read it. It is a short book. It's a very, very simple book. And it's all about this big topic we talked about, Asher, today, which is change. And by the way, when I'm in periods of big change, I always go back to this book. So I've read this book about 10 times. I just read it again this uh, December because we were going through some massive change. And every time I read it, I learn something new because my situation is different. And, you know, I don't know, but if you look at the font also, it's a, such a quick read. You can probably get it done in about an hour. Who has the time these days, right? Um, but the concept, if I took a thing about ROI, return on investment, right? For the investment that I put in, the return is astronomical because I always walk out of reading this um, with three things, you know, that I'm going to do differently. And uh, so that's my book, Who Moved My Cheese by Dr. Spencer Johnson. Fantastic. Well, you're the first person who actually brought the book and actually showed it. So you're you're just an overachiever. <laughs> I know. Well, it's that's that great. Question. I 
I'm sure you were the same, right? It's that Asian heritage that Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's all of us ops people. We think about these little things. They matter. <laughs> we do. Well, you know what? The small things do matter, right? Good things come in small yes. packages. Small things Absolutely. matter. Details matter. I was just yeah. on a call the other day. Devils in the details. You hear these terms. But, yeah. you know, when people say, oh, let's go do that. Well, the idea was great. Great. The customer wanted it. Great. It failed. Why? Yeah. Because we did not pay attention to the operational details. We didn't realize that, uh-oh, you built this thing, and the other thing that was, it was supposed to go into didn't, couldn't accept it. That's why cross-functional, looking systems across, right, looking at the entire life cycle, looking at it from the customer lens end-to-end is so important. And so those are new muscles we need to build in order to be successful. But that's, that's what an ops person thinks true and true. And by the way, I don't know how many people have done I know a lot of people have done sales ops, but I don't know how many people have done sales ops and R&D ops together. But you know what the connecting... Yes, very few people. Is? It's ops, though. Ops is a mindset. And I, I guess yeah. I've, I've hopefully shown that if you have the ops mindset, it doesn't matter what ops you're doing. Marketing ops, finance ops, right? Yeah. R&D ops, sales ops. You could probably do it all because it's all about listening and learning and uh, just knowing how to get things done. And it, it's the muscle, right? And it's, I, keep, I keep on saying this to most people. It's true for my, my career as, or I would say my relatively short career as well, is the, you have to think of the three pillars because you're going to find a lot of amazing um, education and uh, uh, exposure to inspire people. Gosh, just go to a Tony Robbins event. You know, you're going to learn exactly how to inspire people, right? And then you can just sit with like folks from Wharton or Harvard or whoever, and you're going to learn finance, right? The ops is like, it, there's supposed to be, a, uh, I think there was maybe only a few classes, even in undergrad on like technology operations management or some stuff like that. But they don't talk about R&D ops because it's a culture. No, it's actually not. Well, your reaction, you know, when I said R&D ops, you were like, wow, I've never really heard of it. I don't think it's very common. <laughs> R&D ops, honestly. And so I give uh, VMware credit to think about it because even within R&D, you have unifying factors, right? Things like documentation, performance, yeah. security, that cuts all across, right? Our partners, how we deal with our partners. You don't want seven different business units going to the partner. You want one, right? And so yeah. I think it's something new that might catch hold because we need efficiency in R&D as well. Absolutely. Well, if that becomes a thing, we talked about it here on this podcast. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Right before we go, there are uh, one thing that we ask people is are to give a shout out to three other people who you respect. And so, could you give you the chance to give a shout out to three other people who you respect and nominate that we can bring on the show? Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to shout out to my finance ops partner, Paula Delaney. I'm going to shout out to Minu Agarwal, who leads customer success. You know, the, the sales part of that, she actually owns ops as well. And I will shout out to Sumit Dawan, who was my boss that I was referring to, who started the whole customer success movement in VMware. So those would be the three people that I'd shout out to. Well, fantastic, Kathy. Thank you so much for taking time to have this amazing conversation with me. And I'm sure it's going to be uh, well-received by all of the future leaders and execs out globally. And best of luck on your journey. 
Thank you so much, Asher. It was really a pleasure. I really loved speaking with you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Sunny Side Up. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review us and share these insights with your peers. 